You may be seated. Good evening. My name is Greg Davis. I'm one of the pastors at West End Community Church, which is in West Nashville. And I have the privilege of overseeing member care and shepherding there as one of the pastors. And I just want to say what a privilege it is and honor uh, to be here. Uh, Matt, thank you for the invitation. And I, as I told Matt, there are not many places and churches that have evening worship. And so this is a gift for me personally. So, and I pray that preaching the word is, is a gift for you uh, this evening. The title of this sermon is First Words, Fellowship into Fracture. And we're going to unpack this title a little bit as we go. But just to provide some context for this text, is Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And he begins revealing himself to his disciples not only just in physical form, in his resurrected body, but he begins speaking words to his disciples. So in John chapter 20, he appears the first time to the disciples. They're locked in the room. They're fearful of the Jewish leaders. And Jesus speaks to them, peace be with you. A few days later, Thomas, who was not there during the first encounter, he appears to the disciples again. And Thomas, if you remember, said, there's no way. I need to touch him. I need to feel him. I need to see him with my own eyes. So Jesus appears again and says to, and says to Thomas, put your finger here in my hands. Put your hands where I was stabbed. And Thomas says, and Jesus says, don't disbelieve, but believe. And the text that we come to this, uh, this, this evening is the third encounter of Jesus revealing himself. And it's really the beginning of John's epilogue. If you remember in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, uh, John is giving where Jesus was, what he was doing with God the Father before the creation of the world. So this is the epilogue. So it's the bookend of John's Gospel. And he's trying to tie a bow. He's trying to tie a bow on his letter to the church. And what he's saying is, Jesus has completed redemption. And by saying this, he's saying this is the third encounter. And Scripture certainly speaks significantly to Christ's church through the significance of, of, of numbers. I'm not a numerologist. Maybe Matt certainly knows more biblical theology around numbers. But the number three and the number seven is significant in Scripture. It means completion. And this is the third encounter, so it's not, a, it's not coincidence. So think of some of the other significant events in Scripture where the number three is involved. Jesus' ministry lasted three years. Jesus is praised and proclaimed as holy, holy, holy by the, by the angels in the book of Isaiah. Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was dead for three days. He rose on the third day. He restores Peter with three different statements. There's three virtues of the gospel, faith, hope, and love. So it's, it's not a coincidence that John is ending his gospel with the third encounter of Jesus revealing himself to his disciples. And as Charles Spurgeon said, the richest privilege of, un, of unfallen man is fellowship with his father. And that's the theme. That's the theme that ties this whole sermon together is Jesus provides fellowship with his Father to you. 
fellowship with his Father to you because the Father has raised Jesus from the dead. So if you will look now, I'm going to read the scripture. This is John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. This is the word of God for the people of God. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. <coughs> Excuse me. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you so much for how your word is alive. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It cuts to the deepest parts of who we are. And Jesus, we thank you for being the living word. Holy Spirit, apply these truths to, the, to our hearts, to our minds, and help us, enable us, empower us to become more like Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So there are many scenarios in our life where we feel where relationships start taking on different forms. Take, for example, when a man and woman are dating, they become engaged, they become married, they may have a child, they may start a family. Every start, every phase of that relationship will begin to look differently. Some of the best counsel I ever received as a young groom 15 years ago was the woman that you married today, which was 15 years ago, she will be different in a good way, right? It's just a lot of, our, a lot of the phases of our relationships, they go through stages. Parents graduating children from high school off to college, your relationship with your child will begin to look different. Perhaps you have a friend relocating, moving from Nashville to Knoxville. Perhaps you're being called to relocate for work. All of our relationships, they begin to take on a new identity as we grow and, and, and stay in contact through life together. And this struggle is exactly what the disciples are feeling with the resurrected Lord. He's been resurrected, 
but they don't know the nature of the relationship. Are, are we supposed to go towards him? Is he supposed to come towards us? They're just kind of existing. They're kind of drifting. Not exactly sure how this new identity, this new resurrected Lord, how they're going to interact. So the two previous encounters, they've found themselves locked. They've locked themselves up in fear. And what we see in this text is that just like the disciples can doubt and drift, we can too. We can doubt. We can drift. We can drift off course. We can, we can struggle with doubt. We can become disillusioned about our relationship, about what it's actually supposed to be like. Regardless of where you are, children of God, with Jesus, myself included, we can begin to wonder, does Jesus really know me? I mean, I know the Bible says my sins are forgiven, but all my sins? Does he really know all my sins? Are they really forgiven? And a weary and tireless faith can surface. I've been there. Maybe some of you have been there. The thing I love about this text is exactly, some of us might be exactly where the disciples are. And it's not a salvation issue, but it's a fellowship issue with the Father. And when we feel fractured or we feel far or distant from our Father, Jesus brings fellowship into our fracture. And that's what he does with the disciples here. Jesus pursues his disciples. He provides for them. And then he will preside over them. Those are the three points. He pursues them relationally. He provides for their needs. And then he presides over them in paving the way into fellowship with his father. So the first point, look at verses one through five. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias when he revealed himself in this way. So when did this happen? Acts 1 tells us that Jesus appeared to them for 40 days. So the best estimate in a narrative of this book, it took somewhere, it, this took place somewhere between day 8 and day 40. Somewhere in that range. Where did it happen? It happened in Galilee. For Matthew records right before Jesus gave them the great commission to go make disciples of all nations, he told them to go to Galilee. He told them specifically to go to a mountain that he didn't name, but he said, go to the, a, a mountain in Galilee and I will meet you there. And it was about 75 miles as the crow flies. Yet the problem is when the narrative of John opens here in John chapter 21, they're not at the mountain, they're at the lake. They've already drifted off course. They're not where the, Jesus told them he would meet them. So we're already confronted with their waywardness. And Jesus reveals himself anyway. He comes to where they are. Verse 2, who's there? Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John, and two others, most likely Philip and Andrew. So there's seven men. And so this is a familiar group of disciples. It's the same group minus Thomas that Jesus first called and pursued to be his disciples three years ago at the same lake. So again, it's a, John is saying, this is how I'm ending my gospel. He began just the, his account with Jesus calling his men to be his disciples, and he's ending his account. So he's pursuing these men 
And that's when they began to drop everything and follow him. So this is not a coincidence. So Simon, verse 3, Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now we all love fishing in the south. The original language here indicates Peter saying something deeper, meaning I'm going back to my old ways. I'm going back to my old career. And guess what? The other six disciples, they agree. They say, we're going to go with you. We're in. We don't know what this is supposed to look like. We've seen Jesus, but let's go fishing. So Peter begins to be the king doubtman and says something like, I don't know about this commission to fish for men, but one thing I can control and one thing I can do is I'm going to go fishing. I'm going to go back to my old ways. It was like, well, that era of Jesus, that was fun. Let's go do something else now. It's almost in that vein. Can you relate with that? So enter Jesus in verses 4 and 5. And he shouts a question, 100 yards offshore. So imagine a football field. You're out in the middle of the lake. And someone yells to you from shore that you can't identify. And he says something like, boys, have you caught anything? It's a gentle invitational question and of course he knows the answer to a fisherman i mean it's an irritating question right like of course i don't want to tell everyone i didn't catch anything right i mean it's, it's like if you're a hunter it's like well, where's your kill and if you're a student it's like well how'd you do on the exam that was easy he's like well no well it wasn't right it's 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 kind of a it's a humbling question it is getting their attention See, Jesus is pursuing them, and he's meeting them right where they are. They're finding themselves a little aimless. They're back in their previous vocation, their lifestyle. In this pursuit of Jesus towards his disciples, towards you, and towards me, is consistent with how the Father pursues his children. See, God the Father is always the initiator of a relationship. It's by His grace. In John chapter 6, Jesus teaches that no one can come to faith unless Jesus first, unless the God, God the Father first drew Him, drew us to Himself. It's a literally dragging. It's the same verb um, in verses 11 where Peter is hauling off. He's dragging fish to shore. That's the same verb here. Where Peter, God drags us to Himself through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the work of Jesus. And it's a one-sided affair, men and women. It's a one-sided affair. God does the pursuing to have intimate relationship with you. There's nothing that you can do. The disciples here, they're wayward. They're aimless. And at one point in all of our lives, so were you. And that's why we worship. And that's the entire backdrop of Scripture of God pursuing you and a nation and a church to the glory of His name. For example, think about from the very beginning. Adam and Eve. They've sinned. They've run, they've run away from God. They're hiding. In the first missionary effort of God to a, patient, a, a people to Himself, calling a people to Himself, the first question in Scripture is, where are you? That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples and to, his, to us this evening. Where are you? 
I'm here. Where are you? Perhaps you feel like Adam and Eve, where you may be running away. Or God the Father is distant from you. But let me tell you, God's pursuit of you always comes from a desire to reconcile you to Himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's always, always a mission to forgive, never to condemn. That's the love of the Father that He has for you. The mission of Jesus was to seek and save all that was lost. And to seek something is to pursue it. And Jesus Christ was obedient to death on a cross for you. After all, Westminster Shorter Confession, Catechism. What's the object? To glorify God and enjoy Him. Have fellowship with Him. Relationship with Him. To God's personal pursuit involved sending Jesus to die in our place. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin that in Him we might become the righteousness of God and you may be right with God now and forever. And men and women that cannot be lost. And just like God spoke to the prophet Isaiah, He may be revealing Himself to you even though you didn't ask for it. God reveals and He pursues those who aren't looking for Him. Who are not calling on Him. Yet God may be calling you this evening. Here I am. Choose me. Choose me. To the nation of Israel in Isaiah, He said, he said These people all day long I have held out my hands to a stubborn people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. A people who continually provoke me to, the very, to my very face. Yet God says, I am here. And Jesus said this evening, I am here pursuing you, nonetheless. There's nothing you can do to outrun the love of Jesus. So as a way of application, where are you in your life? Where is Jesus pursuing you into a deeper relationship with the Father? What obstacles are in the way? Are there obstacles? I have many obstacles. Is it the latest Netflix drama? Is it the latest binge-worthy show on your streaming platform? Where is, he, is it, where is He inviting you? Through the disciples, Jesus is calling them back to Himself through their vocation. Maybe He's inviting you into a deeper fellowship through your vocation. A hobby, a relationship, a long-lost relationship. Someone from high school has reached out an old classmate from law school, whatever it is, Jesus is pursuing you back. The other question is, where are you doubting His goodness? Are you doubting this evening the goodness of the gospel or God's grace? There's many snares and many toils of the Christian life. And if you are here this evening investigating Christianity... My question for you is, what really brought you here? Why are you really here? And could it be that Jesus Christ is pursuing you into a fellowship with Himself? After Jesus pursues His disciples, He provides for His disciples. Verses 6-11. through 11, He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, 
He's picking up his conversation. Cast your nets on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now the disciples' reaction could have been something like, what fool on shore is yelling at us how to catch fish? After all, we catch fish for a living. This is what we do. But for some reason, namely the authority of the Lord, they blindly obey his command and they experience his abundant provision. Notice the Lord didn't just command the fish into their boat. He could have. He created them. He has authority over them. Yet he worked his provision through his people. The Lord's involved, but so are we, men and women. And he always chooses the provision, and he always chooses the means. So right when the catch happens, John, who is the disciple here whom Jesus loved now knows that this hidden figure is Jesus performing a miracle that he has seen before. He's been witness to. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he, pulled his, he put his full tunic on. So they wore something just on their midsection when they were fishing. I mean, it's a gruesome, it's a grueling, it's physically toilsome to fish. There's, they didn't have fly rods from Orvis. So, I mean, they are, they are getting, they're smelly, they're working So he puts on his full tunic, and John writes that Peter and his compulsive personality just threw himself into the sea. Have you ever done that? Have you just thrown yourself into the sea? Or done something so compulsive that you think back like, man, I was just just called into it. I mean, it's just one of those moments for Peter where it's almost like he's lost his mind. But men and women, he's just glad to be found. Remember a few verses earlier, he had already denounced the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is calling Peter back into fellowship. And there's something wildly intimate about Peter's eagerness to be with the Lord. And as everyone comes ashore, the narrative continues. Jesus is already providing the fish. He's providing breakfast over a charcoal fire. Now, the only other time a charcoal fire, it's an interesting detail that John gives. And if you remember, the only other time a charcoal fire is offered in the New Testament is a few verses earlier. Where Peter denied Jesus three times over a charcoal fire in John chapter 18. Again, not a coincidence. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Not only is he providing physical refreshment from the caught fish, he's providing spiritual renewal for one of his disciples and his doubting heart. The first fire, a few days earlier, created the setting for Peter's denial. The second fire set the stage for Peter's renewal. And isn't that the work of the Lord? Is that not the work of your Savior? And you may be saying, well, that's great for Peter. I'm struggling. I'm hurting. What's this relationship supposed to look like? You don't know, preacher, what's going on in my life. Jesus has the same compassion and care for you as he does for Peter. How do I know that? Scripture teaches there's over 170 verses that refer to the ways that God provides for his children. Don't take my word for it. Let's take the scripture's word for it. Philippians 4 summarizes all of them. 
My God will supply all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. He instructs His followers and equips us, men and women, to ask God for our daily bread. Do you ask God? Do you pray the, the, the daily prayer that God asks us and Jesus instructed and equips us? Jesus tells His disciples not to worry about food or clothing, but to seek His kingdom first. Do you seek God's kingdom first, men and women? He teaches us how to approach Him so He can generously provide. And even when we don't pursue Him, He's still providing. That's the character in the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you're enduring a, a financial, medical, emotional trial. Maybe you're going through something that is even unbearable to shed light on. But God's promises to provide for our physical needs. Rest for our weary souls. Endurance for the Christian road ahead. Direction for the path to walk. Grace for our shortcomings a way out from temptation. His spirit when we're hurting. The prayer of intercession from Jesus. He provides truth in a world that lies. He provides the sacrifice we all need. In the person and work of the Lord Jesus. See, God generously provided the one thing that we all need. And that's the cross of His Son. Where through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are given the perfect righteousness attributed to you, to the glory of the Father through the finished work of Jesus Christ, applied by the Holy Spirit. And if you're struggling to believe these promises outlined in Scripture, remember the story of Abraham with me. Sarah, Abraham's wife, he bore them, bore them a son whom they named Isaac, and to test Abraham's obedience and his provision for Abraham, God commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt sacrifice. Do you remember this story? Abraham made the journey up the mountain, as well as the preparation for the sacrifice. And at the very last second before Abraham was about to kill his son, God spoke. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear me because you have not withheld from me from your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there was a ram in the thicket that God provided for the sacrifice. Ultimately, that's a picture of God providing His Son for the sacrifice that you need, that we need, that provided the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to be a light to the nations in this world. And the text said that Abraham called that mountain, the Lord will provide. So where in your life as a way of application? Where is Jesus providing for you? Have you ever just taken time just to count the blessings? That doesn't, Thanksgiving season is a great time to do this discipline, but have you ever taken it into a weekly or daily rhythm and just count the blessings that God has given you? It's a beautiful exercise. And you just want to fall on your face and say, God, thank you. Perhaps there's a place in your life that he's asking you to trust him to provide for friendships coming out of the pandemic there's a loneliness pandemic happening maybe your marriage maybe there's a difficult season of confusion emotional turmoil you're going through what area of your life does Jesus need to provide are you asking Jesus to provide for 
And when you, when you feel weak and fragile or fractured from the fellowship of the Father, Jesus provides you His Spirit to be with you and to draw you into fellowship with the Father. After Jesus pursues His disciples, He provides for them and then He presides over them. Verse 13, John records as we close in verse 13 that Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. So He starts presiding over them. He becomes their host. Men and women, if you're out to eat at a restaurant, what makes a great host or waiter or waitress, right, to, to, to deepen the experience of your meal, right? It's the anticipation of your next need. That's what Jesus is doing here with his disciples. He's anticipating what they need, and what they need is fellowship with the Father. Scripture records about 15 different meals that Jesus had with others, and more than half of them, he's presiding over them. He's at the head of the table. And Jesus loves to host you at the table of grace. When you come to the table of grace each Sunday, Jesus is presiding over your soul. And prior to his death, Jesus said, in his father's house, there are many rooms. And he's preparing a place for you. And since he's making a place for you, he will come again and take you to be with Him, where we will witness Him preside over all of eternity. That's your Savior. And just as now as Jesus is presiding over His church, the beauty of this story is that through a meal with His disciples, He's simply just setting a table for them to enjoy fellowship with Himself. In Scripture, eating indicates fellowship. It suggests fellowship. For us, right, and if you're like me, eating can be cramming a cheeseburger on the way to soccer practice. That's eating, right? That's my meal. We grab a sandwich on the go. We go through a drive-through. We eat in the car. That wasn't possible in this time. Meals required preparation. They were, they were more drawn out affairs. To eat with someone was to have fellowship with them. It's interesting that in the English translation for the Greek word fellowship, it literally means to commune with another. And when we take communion, and we are communing with God, and we're communing with each other. And that's one of the things that is happening in this text. Men and women, where is Jesus presiding over you? He presides over all saints. He presides over His universal church. He presides over that struggle you're going through. He's presiding over the world affairs and the wars and presidential elections. He's presiding over droughts. He's presiding over genocides that are unthinkable to us. He's presiding over His creation. Where is He presiding over you? He loves to host you because He draws you into deeper fellowship with His Father. And since Scripture testifies how much Jesus enjoys providing, presiding over His church, that He went to death for, her church, for His church. 
And you can trust that Jesus Christ is presiding over your salvation, over your worries, over your heart, over the worries and cares that you brought in here this evening. And He is bringing you home. So what's a relationship with the resurrected Jesus supposed to look like? The answer is the same as it's always been. Personal and intimate fellowship with the living God. And when you feel fractured, when you feel divided or far from God, take heart that Jesus is pursuing you. He's providing fellowship with you. And He's presiding over you in your relationship with His Father. And that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.